once again, you look fantastic. You really do. You are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed, and always shall be until the sun explodes. Hopefully, your gracious and your grateful host, not hopeful that the sun will explode necessarily, but I think you know what I mean. I am not pro-sun exploding. I need to make that very clear. Now that that's out, I hope you're doing well this evening, today, this uh, morning, 4 a.m., wherever you may be listening to the sound of my voice over the interwebs. Quite a day. Kind of overcast, where I am at least. That's California. It's nice. We had a major rainstorm out here. That was weird. Hail. Global warming isn't a thing. <laughs> We're all going to die. Anyway. This, uh, this next episode that I'm about ready to intro uh, was a gentleman that was referred to me by another wonderful gentleman by the name of Chip Jacobs. Chip Jacobs was a guy that I talked to uh, a few months ago or so, and he was uh, entertaining and enlightening, and he liked the band Squeeze. Anybody out there knows what I'm talking about. Good human being. And we actually discussed, uh, he had written a book um, about the Colorado Bridge and that was the bridge that my wife jumped off about 10 years ago. And we had a really powerful conversation about the meaning of the bridge. And he had the whole history of the bridge. And I thought that was interesting. And it was such a lovely conversation that he introduced me to the next human being that I introduced here. His name is Jason Eric Perlin. Uh, Jason's a screenwriter and a director and an editor and an all-around smart guy. Um, he has been named, look at this, name number four in LA Weekly's Top entertainment, uh, reading is difficult, top entertainment professionals to watch in 2023, number four. I wasn't on that list. This guy is smarter than I am. <laughs> he's, uh, he's worked on uh, about 20 feature films uh, since he started, uh, got out of grad school, USC, where I went to, by the way, go Trojans. Um, he's worked with major television outlets and like Warner Brothers and Sony and Lionsgate and incredible guy. Um, he has this, uh, he's in post-production on this movie called Sight, which is like a horror sci-fi. It's about an abandoned government test site. And uh, this guy sees these haunting visions of a past that threatens to destroy his present. Look at that. Um, looking forward to seeing that myself. We talked a lot about generational trauma. How about that? Which is really sort of my thing. Definitely use it a lot in my therapy world um, with some of my clients. And... My favorite part of the conversation, honestly, was that um, he talked about this idea, and this is really what the movie's about, too, uh, this idea of these, this global interconnectedness that we have. And I, I think that's so important. Um, I think we get lost uh, forgetting that we're all interconnected, even from a biological standpoint. I mean, we have DNA, for goodness sakes. We're all connected. But we often forget that, and the movie actually really looks to uh, look at that collision of, of, uh, our collective crises and interconnectedness. And it, it, that sounds a lot more heady than I'm sure it is. I mean, it is obviously heady, I'm sure, but it sounds like a horror movie and sci-fi. That's my thing. It's right up my alley. So I'm extremely excited to, as always to introduce this next guest. Um, and as usual, I hope that you have much fun listening to this as I did making it. This dude's great. And apparently number four in LA weekly. So Look at that. <laughs> Hope you have a wonderful day. Take care, friends, and I'll talk to you next time.
All right, ladies and gentlemen of the Inspired Minds podcast, you dazzle throng, please say hello to the wonderful and talented Mr. Jason Eric Perlman. Jason Eric Perlman, please say hello to the dazzle throng. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. It's nine o'clock in the. Where are you? Are you east or west? I was. Uh, I was forgetting. I'm. I'm in L.A. L.A. All right. Gorgeous nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, so with that patter out of the way, here is the first question that I ask every single person that I interview from the get-go, and that is, Jason Eric Perlman, when you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that truly inspired you? What lit you up? Was it a song? Was it a book? Was it a movie, a poem? Go. I believe it was a rock. A rock. Actually. Uh, yeah. I was a uh I was a an introverted uh kid in in uh my first year of kindergarten and we were outside in a recess uh you know, running around in the kind of edge of a playing field and I had this sense that a crystal of some sort was lurking around there for me to find and I was kind of rooting around in the dirt and I found an unassuming stone that I pulled out and turned over and sure enough it was completely encased in uh in clear quartz crystals and at wow. a young age I thought that was pretty pretty magical and uh, maybe spoke of some sort of intuitive uh power i didn't i didn't quite know i was capable of until then and i uh and and i was pretty charged up about that as i recall as a five-year-old i could imagine <laughs> suddenly you're this you're this uh archaeologist who's finding uh yeah yeah, and after that, I was always like uh, running around in, in woods behind my house trying to find more of them, but I never did. That was a that was a one off, but I <laughs> and I did find it in, inspiring, and I know that it 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 uh, stuck with me this long in life as a as an episode. So I guess it uh, I guess it did something at the time. It did, and obviously it did because you remembered it. So here's the follow up. Uh, it is. So how did that experience get you to where you are now? Well, I would imagine that it uh, continued to prompt me spending a fair amount of time alone <laughs> to a lot of uh, wanderings outside and kind of be in my own imaginative world a lot of the times. I, I, I did not grow up with brothers and sisters, so I had uh, I had ample time to kind of get in my own head and space. And I think having an experience like that uh, at a very young age and, and certainly ones that followed in, in different contexts allowed for a lot of independent time, a lot of creative self-exploration and i think uh when when all that sort of came through the the life funnel uh what what appeared on the other side was this real ambition to make creativity a fundamental ambition of my life i i started out with a lot of just you know graphic arts as a as kids often do with drawing and painting and things like that and then i got into music at a young age and later 
was a little bit more tech savvy, got into photography pretty uh, wholeheartedly. And once all that sort of swirled together, I realized, well, there's an art form that is very much the amalgam of all of these uh, individual art forms that I had really taken a shine to. And I decided to pursue the the very realistic and very practical uh, mode of filmmaking. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how it shook out, I guess. It's funny. I, too, uh, am an only child. And I just remembered this. This is why I love doing these interviews, because it like accesses memories that I've had from a long time ago. Same thing. I'm like mm-hmm. five, six. And, and there was a show, excuse me, called The Hardy Boys. I'm sure you may have known about this. With of the- course. I used to read those books, of course. Exactly. Sean Cassidy and Parker Stevenson, the show itself, I was completely enamored with for whatever reason. And I, I too remember actually going through the, um, I believe it was, yeah, it was my school um, uh, pl- field. Uh, and I would go through with the same thing. I'm like, I'm going to solve crimes. And I'd find footprints. <laughs> You're looking for the clues. Yeah. Totally. totally. <laughs> that was so influential yeah, for well, me. That's the- you talk about music. And I want to go into that, obviously, a little bit here, because as we were talking before, it's a passion to both of ours. So mm-hmm. kind of get me to where you tell me how that how you entered into that world. Was there a seminal moment where you heard a song or was it a gradual entry? Uh, my father was is a, a classically trained pianist and we had a we had a piano in the house. And, you know, I was I was a young kid in the 80s so my my affections in the music world leaned towards the uh the the hair metal guitars that was Ah. so so vogue back then right you know so i i I just saw the you know hot pink and fluorescent uh guitars on the mtv videos and i was like i i need one of those This this has got to this has got to be a part of my life and uh even though I had started uh, playing piano and my, my father had given me lessons in the house when I was starting around four and no, I was, I was okay. It was, I wasn't any prodigy and I wasn't that into it, but um, I got a guitar around eight years old. It's Christmas present. And that was, uh, that was the gateway drug for me. That was, that was when, I developed a lifelong obsession uh, with the instrument. I still play piano, but uh, that that was definitely the tipping off point where um, the heyday of of eighties guitar rock and me were uh, were were sutured forever in 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 time. I'm imagining uh, a BC Rich uh, guitar for the oh, you go the, the BC Rich Warlocks. Those yep. were those were awesome. I never had one of those, but I had some pretty, uh, I had some pretty fired up looking guitars over the years. What'd you my, have? my taste has cooled down a little bit more uh, towards the classics now, but, but back in the day, you better believe it. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of red and a lot of sure lime fluorescent green right. going on. <laughs> and you're playing poison over and over again. That's all you're doing. Yeah, you you gotta you gotta back then you had to. That's exactly that's exactly right. And and this is you're you're still in L.A. at this point, right? No, I I grew up on the uh, in the on the East Coast, right outside of Philadelphia. Oh, so I okay. was there through the whole front 
part of my life until college years. Got it. But you were you were you were a hair metal guy for a little while there. I was, I was, and those uh, those affections of of youth, you know, you you sort of leave them behind for that whole kind of donut hole of of young adulthood, and then as they the adage goes about aging, you you kind of come back to your roots, and I and I gotta say that that uh, some of that stuff has found a home in me yet yet again, even at this uh, middle age point. <laughs> Look. Come back to the well. I can make the entire show about bare metal. I might not do that, but I might because I will. I will simply ask. (laughs) What a a fascinating time, right? What a fascinating time for music because MTV dominated. MTV was a national voice. It was national radio, right? Mm -hmm. It was one voice that was literally it. It was a giant national radio station. So if you didn't get played on that station, you weren't anyone. But if you were, because there was such a limited amount of slots to fill – you were a massive star. It was feast or famine when it came to that stuff. Yeah, it's very true. And the top tw- the top twenty countdowns and all that uh, star making engine that the that the station was the, the the channel was back then. It was a juggernaut for that it, era. It really was, you know. And and not to get too off track here. Well, there's no there's no such thing on this show, I guess. But um, <laughs> he, what I find fascinating is that I, I'm really interested, and I think I talked to, to uh, your friend Chip Jacobs as well about this on a show, is that idea of a national voice, right? That kind of back then, yeah. it was limited choices. In fact, even before that, you only had three TV stations. You know, it was CBS, ABC. Yeah, that's true. All you had. So you had water cooler moments, and you had a national conversation, and then now with the splintering of all kinds of information, you kind of lose that, maybe for better or for worse, because there's less homo- less uh, homogeneity and more, um, you know, kind of kind of a wide spectrum of, of voice. But it's, it's just fascinating to me that idea of having one one complete voice when it comes to music, at least. So, but nevertheless, yeah. Well, I've go ahead. No, no, no. Finish your thought. I was, I was just going to say that it's a. Uh, I don't know. That, that whole concept is fascinating to me. So take me, because again, I could talk about fucking hair metal all day long, and I probably don't want to. <laughs> Trust me. By the way, fun fact, I was actually on rock, uh, VH1's Rock and Roll Jeopardy, uh, which is the exact same show as Jeopardy, but it was hosted by Jeff Probst before Survivor. And um, I lost, but at least I was on. I'm sorry. Ah. Yeah. I fucked up. That's awesome. I th- I think I vaguely remember that show when it was around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rock and yeah. Roll Jeopardy. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I was. What I, was, I was, the, what, was the qu- what was the question that that was your death knell? Do you remember it? It's such a complex question. <laughs> to this day, it's still difficult for me to get. It's essentially well, the sound, the the actual. Um, boy, am I going off track here? But the actual uh, <laughs> category. category was 80 soundtracks. So at this point, by the way, this is the final round. I'm uh, and I'm in, right? Yeah. I'm like, first up, first round killed it. Second round destroyed. I'm like the man. I got like 20,000. 80 soundtracks. I bet it all. This is my thing. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and it turned out that it was like this singer had two number one hits from 80 soundtracks with different singers from different bands. It was like so, so confusing. It was Jennifer Warren's mm. had a song with Love Lip Lips Up Where We Belong from Officer and a Gentleman and Dirty Dancing with the guy from the uh the Something Brothers. Oh, oh right. Yeah. Uh, 
right. Oh man. Regardless, yeah, that's tricky. Regardless, I still feel like I'm a victorious man because I can say I was on the goddamn show. But that being said, tell me now about take me <laughs> take me into how you became a filmmaker because I think that story has got to be fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, we'll find out. Uh, I had the uh, sort of the yen for it early in my high school days and we had like a film club at my high school and i and i started finding my way into watching you know more obscure art films and foreign films and stuff that you just don't see in you know heavy rotation on an hbo or see prominently displayed at a at a blockbuster video of the of the era and i sort of expanded my sense of of the history of the medium and what was out there and what was interesting to me. And uh, with a lot of convincing from my uh, high school, you know, faculty with, with concerned parents and so forth, I, I went off to college to pursue uh, a, a more practical degree. And lo and behold, my first semester of, of college, I got, quite sick with with uh, mononucleosis which a lot oh. of uh, a lot of college kids uh end up encountering and uh i was so knocked out and and bedridden by it that i left school for a semester i came back to philadelphia and i started taking classes at a at an art school downtown called the University of the Arts which is actually the same school that uh, David Lynch went to and it left a very very dark impression on him he made some of his most twisted uh, early short films while he was there um but at any rate uh i spent a semester and then through the following summer uh really just diving headlong into uh, classes there. I was making films with a little hand crank, sixteen millimeter Bolex camera, and cutting oh. them together on a on a hand splicer. This is pre digital editing software, and and still with with actual old fashioned film that you need to send off to get developed. It was there was a wonderful romance to it all, uh-huh. um, and I emerged from that feeling like, all right, this really does confirm it for me that, that, that this is a passion. This is something that I want to pursue into, into, you know, the, the remainder of my life. And uh, once I finished out the remainder of my uh, bachelor's degree, I decided to really, you know, really go after it. And I was fortunate enough to, to be accepted at uh, USC for grad school and I came out to Los Angeles and did the grad program at USC in film. And, you know, the rest is, uh, the rest is basically emerging into the industry at large and cutting teeth and getting knocked around and getting discouraged and deciding this has all been a total fiasco and trying to figure out what else you can possibly do when the chips are down and then then you rally back and you find traction anew and eventually i think with persistence and continued you know real real commitment uh 
push towards the the end goal of, of really wanting to do this with your time and and your capacity uh you find you find a door and um i'm i'm grateful to to say that eventually i did and I found traction both as a screenwriter uh, on on a number of projects. I, I worked as an editor for a great many years. That was really kind of my bread and butter as I was writing and as I was trying to expand, you know, my my network to to have the opportunity to direct here and there. And you know, that was always fundamentally my goal. But it's it's a very difficult chair to to get seated into. Um, but you know the the editorial path showed me tremendous insight into how the whole business works and what directors uh decisions were in the shooting that ultimately leads to you know where you truly create the film is in the editorial suite so i got a real great overview of you know the professional uh process i i worked at a, at some studios i worked at lionsgate um I, i've done work with some of all the main studios in town and in different capacities and eventually uh with with both screenwriting and with uh more recently some opportunities to direct feature films um you know sort of found my found my way across the lily pads to to hop to where i am now and it and it's uh it, it's uh been quite a strange sinuous journey for for 20 years i would say now even even longer since that first brush with the medium and uh and university of the arts in philly i would imagine and in fact you know i got a crash course I got a, I should say I got a master class in uh, the concept of editing. I'm a giant film nerd and I really didn't fully know what editing was until my third interview on this show. I interviewed um, a guy named Paul Hirsch who um, had edited mm-hmm. George, you know, uh, George Lucas and Brian De Palma and um, all oh, John. Wow. Yeah. It was a master class. I mean, the guy's in Life of Pi. I mean, yeah. every, he did everything from like, he was, he was De Palma's guy. So like starting in the seventies, he started Carrie and all that stuff. So um, wow. I got a real, wow. It was amazing. Unbelievable. I got a serious, I mean, obviously I got a master class. I mean, how often do you get a chance to talk to the editor of star Wars, you know? So, um, it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was incredible to me, especially from the pre-digital era, right. Which I know that you've obviously worked yeah. on a bit as well. And it's just, all it is, is just rolls of film and you're, you're just cutting <laughs> That's all you're doing, you know? And to be yeah. able to make those choices, that's what that's what impressed me the, the most was that you've got all these choices to choose from, you know, an, an angle, a yeah. cut, a line, and you're just you're the one putting it together. That's impressive to me. Well, the interesting thing about it, too, is it's sort of like those old choose your own adventure books from from the Hardy Boys era that we were talking about earlier. When you when you make one decision, it, it's sort of the domino that hits the next. and you're sort of fatalistically plugged to a path uh even when cutting a given scene there's a there's certain you know, i don't want to say there's rules but there's certain conventions that you know once you move into closer shots or you move into close-ups you're not going to bounce back out to a big wide master shot so you have to kind of know where all the takes lead the scene the, hmm. the material you want to use that you think is the best performatively from the actors or the 
you know, there's no screw ups in the camera work or whatever the case may be. It's not a sound hit that you need to get around. And then it sort of creates this veining in the marble that you that you follow, you know. Uh, and there's something very there's there's something very gratifying about editing, not only to see a scene come to life and start to really play and and either move you or excite you or whatever the the tone of that particular scene might be, but there's also something kind of metaphysical about it where there's almost a way that the scene wants itself to play out because when you make a particular decision about either how you start the scene or what shots you use to get into the dialogue or whatever the case may be, then you sort of get, you get kind of married to a pathway and that sees you through the remainder of it. And once you kind of latch onto it and the scene's working, it almost confirms that you've made You've made you, you've solved the equation, so to speak. You've kind of you've kind of found the right answer into into sculpting the scene, which is which is really quite gratifying. And and it, it you know the editing world versus the production world, uh, you know post production versus production itself. When you're actually on a set and you're working with actors, and time is always your enemy, and Murphy's law is always there to to make anything that can go wrong, go wrong, lights, crew, illness, you name it, force majeure of weather, who knows. But uh, the editing room is this blissful womb where time is your, time is your friend again. (laughs) And you can, you can just pour over footage and, and find the answer to a scene, sort of crack the code. And, uh, and not have quite the same pressure cooker of uh, of the rigors of production. So it's a very, it's a very different sort of it's a very different feel. It's got its charms to it. Do you find it easier to be your own editor? That's an interesting question. I I, I did for a long time, um, and I and I kind of just did my own editorial on material just de facto. And sometimes that was a decision based upon what the budget for a given project was. And I'm free to myself. So, you know, right. so that has its own That's justifier, true. but uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the further I've, I've sort of gotten in, in my process and, and career, I've found that, it's really instrumental to have the the interplay of an of another creative opinion in that realm. Once you get into editorial, you're you, you know bouncing ideas off of a of a really savvy editor is is very 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 valuable. And you know if you've directed the material, like for instance, I'm in post production and working with an editor on a on a movie I directed this summer, and you know sometimes I'll have a as I think you should, sort of a preconception of how I envisioned a scene playing out when we shot it or, or sort of modes in which I directed it. And then we get into the editorial and we find this is a more interesting and more compelling way to take it. If it even means discarding certain lines to speed things up, or it means going to an unexpected shot that wasn't really planned to be part of the scene, but it has a, 
it has a really interesting impact once it's added. So, you know, having that, having that additional creative collaborator, uh, I think is, is pretty integral. And it, it's, it's quite rare, I think, at the, you know, sort of at the, at the real professional tier of things that directors edit their own material. There's a handful that do. I know, I know Soderbergh does and, uh, like P.T. Anderson early on was was doing some of his own editing, uh, but you know it's it's rare and it's rare for a reason because I think that the 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 energy field that's created between a director and an editor working in conjunction uh, does bring forth much more interesting things. I would imagine because it bring it literally brings another voice into the room. Right. Yeah. And you yeah. have that ability to bounce that off someone because otherwise you're just in your own silo. And if you're an auteur, great, knock yourself out. But I mean, you can still be an auteur, obviously, and have, have someone else as an editor. But it's always, I, I would imagine, that's why I asked that question because it just struck me. It must be great to have someone else who at least bounce ideas off of. It is. And, it, and it's also really, I think it's also really sort of edifying to have someone who, once you work through a scene together, you have their confirmation that it's also working for them. You know, right. you might have very different sensibilities in terms of your your taste or your overall, you know, kind of vibe you gravitate towards as as a filmmaker. But you know, when a scene's working, regardless of the the flavor, it's 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 either working or it's not. It's a pretty binary thing. So to have a to have a secondary set of eyes and seasoned ones at that to be able to say, yeah, this is, this is cooking or I don't know, this feels like it's kind of, kind of a fart in a bathtub right now. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's valuable to have the, it's very valuable to have that interplay. By the way, that is the first and perhaps last time that the term fart in a bathtub will ever be used on my show. Congratulations. <laughs> You've done well. You've done well. Yeah, you, um, you got to aim for for originality, right? You, uh, you you've definitely aimed for something. Um, so here's my next little intro, or here's where I want to head with this. And you had mentioned this, obviously, that the film that you're working on a post production site. I there's one particular thing I want to pull out now. Uh, first of all, you know, please go through this in far more detail than I'm about ready to explain. But it, sure. it's essentially about an abandoned government test site, which I love that's the concept in general anyway. And it seems that it's about a family man. I'm just reading what I got here. Began seeing haunting visions of sure. the past, threatens to destroy his present. But before you go yeah. to, I want you to please not only describe the film and the process of it, but also I really thought this was interesting. And I want to hear more about this. You said, we've never experienced a greater awareness of our global interconnectedness nor our collective crises, and Sight really aims to look at the metaphysics of that collision. Tell me about that. Mm -hmm. That sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we, we, and when I say we, it's myself as the screenwriter and uh, some very, very dedicated producers who have worked with me on this particular project for a number of years before we got to uh, being able to to fundamentally realize it and shoot it um this is a it's a complicated story and it's also a very simple story um on the surface it is about sort of an everyday 
family man who's who's grappling with some personal life troubles, who is also a commercial real estate inspector, and goes to inspect this property. They don't really fundamentally know what it is. It's a little bit difficult to decipher by way of deed and the, the transfer of hands over the years, but it proves to be this uh, government facility that was housing some very, very uh, interesting quantum physics, uh, particle physics uh, experiments in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And without without sort of tipping the hat too far about what ultimately they were trying to do, um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to hopefully uh, the, the viewer. But the the impact on our main character is that he does, in fact, start seeing people and uh, time periods around him that are, are very, very distinct and disjointed from his own. For instance, there's a whole uh, sort of timeline in World War II China uh, in their conflict with Japan that the uh, main character starts getting a window into by way of his own uh, friends and family, uh, seeing seeing images of other people within them uh, in, in sort of a hallucinatory way, and what it what it ultimately ends up, I think, really thematically being about, without you know going into too much explanatory detail about about what the I hope the viewer discovers by way of watching it is. Looking at how prismatic uh, our experience of particularly trauma uh, has become in the world, um, if you think about, you know, what you were saying earlier about all these different ways of getting information, whereas in the '80s, you know, you had like three networks yes. and maybe MTV, and, and everything was a bit more compact in terms of how how human beings were receiving media news information the simultaneity of event uh so now that we do live in this much more prismatic uh mode of getting information i think that what we're finding is there's both uh there's both a unity and and also a total disjunction uh, between how we experience basically uh, traumatic events. So for instance, like uh, Ukraine, you know, we, we see this war unfolding in real time, uh, you know, just a, just a plane flight away from wherever you are, sort of in the, sure. in the heart of the world. And yet, you know, our empathy and our concern can can certainly be aroused by seeing images of it, being being apprised of information about how horrific the, the the battles have been and how unjust. But yet, the you know the 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 feeling of it impacting and and being sort of relevant to your everyday is not. I think for some it is, but for for many it is not particularly relevant. And even though you're aware of it and you're you're informed about it and you and you you're sort of empathic towards it, uh, it, it's not resonating as part of your own 
sphere. And what I what I really wanted to explore was this this idea of uh, and I read a really interesting couple of books about this. It's sort of a new branch of of psychology that maybe you can weigh in on, given given your other uh, mode professionally as well, called generational trauma. And yes. it's this oh, idea. Yes. Oh yes, it's this idea that that groups, the let's say the offspring even of of you know, Holocaust survivors or you know wartime uh, progeny of of of, of veterans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, even though they didn't necessarily directly experience the traumatic events that their parents did something in the collective psyche uh it reflects them and and it makes the the offspring actually resonate differently with uh s- sort of the the inheritance of that of that very problematic event and i think that there's something that e- even expanding that idea beyond direct lineage and looking at it more as sort of our our collective inheritance of information and we we all in in a media sense sort of experience one another's trauma now you know we 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 see things by way of news or by way of of representation that depict a, a, another's plight and we feel it we can empathize with it that's a natural human uh, uh you know resonance but Looking at how that affects us individually and collectively, I think, is something very interesting to explore, and it's very complicated to explore. But roundaboutly, well, and I and I know I've gone on a huge tangent, but that but that that sort of core investigatory theme of this idea of generational trauma and and how people are are sort of connected metaphysically across time i don't want to get into woo woo like karma per se but i i think that there's i think there's something very interesting and and very important about looking at that and i haven't seen it much depicted in in a in a narrative context and that was something i i was very interested in exploring with this no you know, I will. I got to jump in here. You, know, you talk about that generational uh, trauma. The, the way I look at it, and you actually said the perfect word, honestly, when you said um, you said that it was. Uh, well, here's how I describe generational trauma to my clients, quite frankly. And I'll say, you know, when someone dies in a family, right? There's an heirloom. There's a car. There's a boat. There's money. There's there, there's something that's passed down. But it's the right. emotional heirlooms, the perspective heirlooms, the trauma heirlooms that are passed down that are far more important, far more potent. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So you look at it through that, yeah. I, that through that same lens that you were talking about, about handing it down, handing it all down. And it's that it's that it's a reaction to trauma. It's it's the perspective of trauma. It's it's the lessons from trauma or not learning the lessons that you have been passed down about trauma. That that generational concept, very much so. As a family systems therapist, especially, it's amazing to, to see because you can seriously just watching you, know, you ask a client in the first session. You kind of do like a little genogram and go, "Oh, who are your parents there? And <laughs> what happened here?" And you can draw a pretty straight through line when it comes to a lot of this stuff. So that yeah. that whole idea yeah. is so important for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
And it's and it's something that I think only only I mean psychology as a as a real sort of codified science is is still relatively new, even though it should be pretty old since we've been around for a minute. But you know, if you if you look at Freud or Jung or the sort of forefathers of, of, of modern psychology just being around in the late eighteen hundreds into into the early nineteen hundreds, it's still still pretty pretty new uh set of set of ideas about how humans operate. And I think that in the twentieth century, where so much conflict erupted with two two world wars, multiple, you know, very, very, very significant tragic world episodes uh on top of those sure coupled with the with the dissemination of 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 information and news in a very much more you know universal way than had ever been seen in the world before by way of tv by way of daily circulation newspapers radio etc etc the 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 understanding of this sort of more collective uh traumatic inheritance as you aptly put it uh has 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 become sort of a new awareness for us all of of, of how this operates on the psyche and i and i think it's i think it's very crucial to understand because in a way it's uh it's sort of the most potent thing that we all experience collectively uh, on the planet now. And I think, uh, you know, uh, one of, one of my big takeaways from the, from the COVID years, which I guess we're not fully out of the woods yet, but, but certainly the, the real lockdown era of, of 2020 into, into 2021, it was such a, it was such a wake up call about, how not only how interconnected we are as a world but also how distinct personal responsibility is to the collective you know um i've i've i often think when i see a traffic jam which is pretty daily where i live that Mm -hmm. in some instances it's just one person's error that's caused that (laughs) you know it's it's like so, it's a great exemplar of like how how influential one person can be in, in any given moment. It's a great point. You know, you've changed the whole timeline of hundreds, if not thousands, of other people's uh, a day now by by your you know maybe like eating a granola bar and taking your eye off the road or whatever right. the case may be. But I think that um, the, the the COVID circumstance did. For me, and, and creatively, as I was kind of sitting with this idea for the story, and really kept turning it over and looking at looking at ways to to further enhance and and dissect this concept that I that I had always wanted to explore with it. Um, you know, those years really confirmed or, or, or reawoken for me the idea of how connected the world is and how. It, how utterly entangled uh, our decision making and our personal responsibilities are with with one another's, and how much ripple effect, you know, your actions and your decisions and your choices uh, radiate out into the into the world at large and impact 
others. And I think that that's, that's a, a, a very responsibility inducing awareness and also a, a somewhat of a daunting one because I, I, I don't think we've ever lived in a time when kind of like the quote that you, that you uh, read of, of my statement to, uh, to deadline that, you know, one of the, one of the things that I wanted to explore here was that interconnectivity and, you know, mainly through the lens of, of crisis or, or, or trauma, which I think brings those things into the boldest relief. They, they, they lay them the barest, uh, for us to, to see how they operate in the world. Um, unfortunately, it, 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 it doesn't seem to be symmetrical where really positive things <laughs> do the same, uh, crack open the same awareness, but certainly the, the, the very significant, um, problematic ones do. Uh, yes, abs everything you're saying is exactly correct. Only because I agree with it. Because you're saying what I think, so therefore it's correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll go with that. Then. We'll go with that. You're right, though. Hey, so uh, let me ask you this real quick, because I, I do want to get to uh, mm -hmm. to Smog Town here in a second. Um, but sure. tell me about this whole post-production thing. So I read this all the time, right? It's in post-production. It's in post-production. What the fuck does that mean? Wow, it's it's really um, it's really the more generous portion of the pie when it comes to uh, to uh, movies creation. So after the movie's shot, after you're you know on set with the camera rolling, getting the performances from the actors, you've got a bazillion takes. You've got tons and tons of footage to go through, and you know, you use the, the, the guide post of the screenplay to get into the editing room and start cutting it together. And that's the, the, the initial uh, process in post-production, but there's so much more. So once you're pretty far along on cobbling the movie together in the edit, then you start to have all the other ancillary processes begin like the visual effects if you need to do something we have a, we have a fair amount in our film where you know we have to do these sort of transitions of people's faces from one face to another or we have to do a, a transition from one space uh, to another a, a room to another room we have we have a fair amount of sort of visual gimmickry like that in this film and that's a whole branch of both R&D that a, that a VFX company ha has done with us and then the actual iterative process that they need to go through version after version for our you know for us to look at and approve and then it gets slotted back into the into the movie and then there's also the score there's all the sound design there's all the uh you know sound effects that are necessary that's a whole different uh, department and a whole different company uh, takes the baton from the editor of the of, of at least a rough cut of the movie, and they start doing their sound design work, which is, you know, does there need to be howling wind outside of a window? Does there need right. to be the sound of a train a train passing in a distance, or a dog barking, or uh, uh, footsteps down a hallway? Any number of of sonic add-ons and and also design flourishes. There's a ton, there's a ton of sort of subconscious 
sound design work that goes into virtually any movie where the atmospheres, the room tones, the, the feeling of giving a, 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 an environment space that you don't really capture so much when you're shooting because you want to concentrate on actually delimiting the amount of ambient sounds you're getting. So you really get clean dialogue and you don't get other things kind of knocking into your sound takes. So you have to kind of build that world out all over again in, in post-production. So there's that process. And then of course there's the score. So a composer, once they've been selected and we have a wonderful, uh, really, really exciting, uh, EDM artist who's, who's quite well known, uh, nice. and, and really, really a, a phenomenal creative symbiont with this, uh, doing the score and, you know, there's discussions in that realm and looking at, at brackets of where scenes need music and what that music should be like tonally and what's the vibe what's the build it's just the, and then ultimately there's all the the color the, what's called right. color grading where you go through really kind of shot by shot scene by scene and give the whole film a unified look now some of that is obviously achieved and or certainly aimed at when when shooting in general it's not like you're let's let's make this scene look this way and this scene look that way there's a there's a uniformity that you strive for once you're shooting in production but you know things things change it's a it's a cloudy day versus a sunny day even from take to take sometimes you know you get a great performance that you want to use and it's under a it's under a shaded cloudy sky and two seconds earlier you were on a character in in direct sunlight you know, if right. it's an exterior scene. So the, the, you, you have to try to harmonize uh, those elements, which, you know, God bless uh, ones and zeros. You can, you can do these days. It's a lot harder back in the, back in the film light days where you literally were hitting film with, uh, with different colored lights to expose it differently. <laughs> when yeah. You were trying to streamline this stuff, totally different archaic animal, but um you have a lot of tools in, in your in your box now but nevertheless yeah, yeah that's that's kind of roundaboutly what post production is all about there's a lot that goes into it it's not just uh it's not just the editorial it's all of these other um all these other facets and that's to say nothing even of marketing and and now in the 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 the, the, the social media era you know putting sure. teasers out and little little enticing bites of of material that have to be sort of mined out of the edit as it's progressing this this so much that goes into post-production that i think is um is not as common knowledge as what's happening you know on a on a day-to-day film set it's uh it's it's a big deep well of process I can I can clearly tell now. Thank you for the education. <laughs> so, uh, lastly, I did want to go a little bit into uh, the lovely Smog Town, ladies and gentlemen. Smog Town is uh, was a book written by a dear friend of my, now mine, a former interviewee on said show, and Chip Jacobs. What a hell of a fucking guy who actually introduced me yeah. to this gentleman, Jason Eric Perlman. And so, tell me what you're working on. I kind of know a little bit about the thing, but explain. Yeah, this is uh this is really uh, this is really a fantastic project and and Chip uh, as as you just 
brought in with your intro is is also a very very close friend of mine and and began as a creative collaborator uh, he wrote a book very 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 uh trenchantly researched and and wonderfully executed book um about the Los Angeles smog crisis and you know everybody kind of within LA and and even from afar understand that LA's wrestled with its air quality over the years but I don't think they quite understand and this is sort of the nature of of what we're what we're bringing to awareness with this project uh, this is a television show mind you uh, it started as a as a non-fiction book an exposé that that uh, chip wrote a number of years ago that won a number of awards and was on environmental you know, top 10 lists all over the place, uh, for, for many years. And, um, in the forties, fifties and sixties, Los Angeles had become nearly unlivable. Uh, the, the degree of respiratory illness and, and death people literally confined in iron lungs and hospitals, uh, the, the, the spike in emphysema and lung cancer was off the charts and it was really the first broad scale uh environmental crisis that the that the world i mean you could say the eruption of a volcano is an is an environmental crisis of sorts but this is this is one of human direct mechanized origin as opposed to a you know a tsunami or a or a volcano this is something that we created that looped back around to do us great harm. And it got so bad and so political that the grassroots uh, individuals who, who just got fed up with not being able to literally step outside and see their mailbox, or let alone breathe to get there, uh, started really banging the drum for change. And it started on the local level, and there was obstruction there. It tried to get all the way up to the the governor, uh, 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 multiple governors across those years of, of the state, and there was no real actions taken. There was a lot of debate about what was really causing it. Was it cars? And of course, Michigan and the whole Detroit uh, auto lobby put up the greatest uh, smokescreen, for, for pun intended, uh, to to try to make status quo uh, not change. The, California was their biggest car market, still is, and the idea that their machines were killing people by the virtue of what was coming out of their tailpipes was was not something they were willing to admit or to make any kind of substantive changes to correct. So this battle went all the way from the grassroots activism and small bureaucratic air control agencies of Los Angeles all the way to uh, Washington, D.C., where the car lobby was battled head on. It found allies and some really big political heavy hitters like RFK. Robert Kennedy was a huge ally of of this movement. Um before he was ironically uh, killed right here in L.A., as we all know, Um, and all the way to people like Ralph Nader, uh, who is a big consumer lawyer advocate for the uh, 
for the grassroots that wanted to take down the the car companies and it 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 just boiled over into such a giant powder keg of 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 very very fascinating political and interpersonal drama that made it all the way through presidential ranks there's a whole thing with nixon when he got into office uh after sort of being a shoe in to the to the presidency after rfk was assassinated uh, who was going to be this great champion for for uh, the Los Angeles air battles uh, if he were to gain the presidency. And he, he vouched as much, and it's very tragic that he never got there. But um, Nixon, who had a lot of uh, pals in the auto industry, uh, wiped away all of the uh, legal battles and claims, antitrust charges against the auto industry uh, with what's called the consent decree, and basically gave them a pardon, so to speak, as a as a group of manufacturing conglomerates to keep doing business as usual. And that this all culminated ultimately because of these very brave and and indefatigable uh, grassroots activists out of Los Angeles in the National Clean Air Act that was in, uh, in, in the very early 1970s. This is basically the precursor of getting the Clean Air Act passed. So Smog Town, uh, as, a, as a show, which you know, is an outgrowth of Chip's book, really charts this, uh, this uphill battle that these individuals really to begin uh, fought all the way to DC and got tremendous public outcry to side with them. It's a great episode where about 500,000 Angelino letters were dumped on the Capitol building steps in DC that were all rallying and railing for, for air control standards at a, at a federal level. And uh, ultimately, the the outcry worked, and it's a you know Chip and I, and our and our partners at the studio level for this for this project, you know really believe that this is a grand example of what individual public outcry, our our collective and individual voices still have value out there it's not a it's not a hopeless case that climate change is just gonna wipe us off the face of the earth and we can't do anything about it i think that you know we're we're trying to explore a battle cry of something that worked in the past where collective voices uh teamed to affect real change and at a very substantive uh level that that got sweeping legislation and the whole wholesale conversion of an industry towards towards uh you know a cleaner and, and more livable product and so forth and so on so there's there's a lot to unpack uh in in this story but we feel that it couldn't be more relevant to the moment at hand and we also you know because of the virtue of the time periods that it that it moves across especially the tumult of the the post-war 60s and you know the, the counterculture and the dawning of the environmental movement that that really was 
a part of uh, 60s mentality for the first time. Um, a lot of the, I think, the, the socioeconomic and, and gender and racial politic that was happening in the 60s, it, it has a lot of overlap with yeah. a lot of the, uh, the, 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 the um, you know, stuff happening in those spheres right now. And and you can draw a real direct through line of, of of thought and of and of outrage and of you know the the whole sort of culture wars if you want sure. to call them that uh, that that really got really got their their fundamental uh, public sphere start in, in that era in this country. I'm so going there's to- a lot there's a lot going on with that <laughs> i can tell and i'm going to do you a favor actually i'm going to give this one for you for a freebie before we kind of uh, close up shop here and that is i'm going to give you a tagline for the entire project and i have it in my head it's a good marketing hook you ready it like it encapsulates everything you just said fuck smog the story of smog town that's my, <laughs> that's my gift to you it's like pretty you. much oh, pretty for much yeah yeah i think so here's I how i like that's, to end uh, that's like sachi and sachi stuff Exactly. Fuck smog. It's easy. Don't use naughty weapons. Right. Um, so here's how I like to end these shows. Uh, I like to pretend it involves a little acting. I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. You're going to pretend to say goodbye. I'm going to pretend to hang up, and then we're going to do a post mortem chat. Deal. That sounds great. That right. Sounds Here great. we go. I'm, I'm gonna. Here's the acting involved. Actually, there's no acting. It's a bunch of bullshit. I had an absolute blast, my friend. No wonder Chip Jacobs likes you. Any, basically, to me, Chip <laughs> Jacobs is like Rome. Like all roads lead to Rome. So if you're like a friend of Chip's, you're in Rome. You're a good guy. So with that being said, well, thank I'm, you so much for doing this show. Your turn. Say my good- pleasure. It's been a great. Uh, it's been a great uh, opportunity to to pontificate and to uh, and to talk about some some projects and some ideas that are very important to me. And I hope some uh, some of your listeners and and uh, viewers out there will. Uh, take a peek at these projects when they hit the the airwaves and and get something valuable from them. I, I oh my god! So you it's just been gave a great me, forum. You just gave me a brilliant idea. I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm going to market this now. Perhaps I may change the name actually to uh, Pontification Station by Jeff Watson. <laughs> I kind of like that. Fair I enough. Like that. Fair it's enough. actually it's very similar to the eventual private practice I want to have called Dysfunction Junction. All right. Well, listen, uh, a okay, pleasure, well, man. Thank you. My pleasure. Let me hang up here and then we'll do a post chat. Hang tight. And one, two, three. Click. Sounds good. <laughs>